Well, the verdict is out. According to Channel 9's Parenting Guidance TV show, uh, having explored a number of parenting styles, mother of two cats' honesty style of parenting was the winner in the search for Australia's best parenting style. Uh, But is there really a best parenting style or way to parent your children? ABC journalist Jodie Gibson helps navigate this topic for us, giving us her take on the matter. Uh, As was evident in the first episode of Parental Guidance, despite our choice of parenting style or natural leaning, we all love our kids and want them to grow up to be strong, independent, respectful, happy, and most importantly, to know that they are loved. There's no one style of parenting that gets to stand on the winner's dais. Most of us don't even have a style that could fit into a box. We're just parenting by feel. And that's okay, because really, what it boils down, when it boils down to it, we're all just doing our best. We all love our kids, and that is what matters. What do you think? Is Jody right? I think Jody sums up so well a dominant position uh, that our culture has when it comes to parenting. Undergirding her comments is a whole worldview, a worldview that is dominated by the subjective rather than the objective, that makes decisions on feelings more than absolute truths. When we think of what is best for our children or what it means to love them, it seems to me that it's really important for us to define those things. What is best? What is love? Can we define those things? And who gets to decide what is best? What is wholesome? And, and how do we shape that uh, ourselves? Our culture, by and large, in answering that question, what is best for our children or what does it mean to love them in the best way, uh, our culture tends to say you, you as a parent, you get to decide uh, and, and define what is best and what that love uh, ought to look like. Whatever you think or feel is best. Now God, though, through his servant Moses, cautions us to view the matter very differently. In fact, more than cautions us. He urgently pleads and commands us to view our whole lives, including our parenting, uh, from a biblical perspective. Here in Deuteronomy 6, Moses beckons the Christian to choose God's way over what maybe the world might say, knowing that God's way is truly what is best for us and for our children. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't work through our personalities as parents or that we can't take and and receive little tips here and there in different ways. But in terms of our overall approach, to parenting and the fundamental principles that we uh, apply to that, uh, God speaks decisively uh, in his word and helps instruct us how we are to approach that. And so as we can think about Deuteronomy 6 today, I want to think of three things. Uh, the, The context of these commands, the commands themselves, and then a concern. And so first, let's think about the context. The context in which Deuteronomy 6 comes to the Christian and that these commands are given to us. Now, you might know that old adage. Ask any real estate agent about what is most important when buying a home. They will reply three things. Location, location, location. 
And so it is with these commands. As believers, these commands come to us in the context of God's grace and a covenant relationship with us. In Deuteronomy, the backstory is this. Ancient Israel were on the cusp of entering the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land God had divinely promised to give them hundreds of years earlier. And now finally, those promises were coming to fruition. Moses is now at the end of his life. In fact, the book ends with the recording of his death at the good old ripe age of 120 years. The whole book of Deuteronomy is like a great big sermon or series of sermons where Moses is instructing Israel how they are to live once they enter this land, once they cross over the Jordan and go into it. In chapter 5, the chapter just before, Moses repeats the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, commandments God has given directly to his people and are central to God's instruction and indeed is the Old Covenant. Chapters 6 to 26 are really an extended exposition of the Ten Commandments for Israel. But before he instructs them in these commandments, right at the beginning of these commandments, we see that God gave the Old Covenant to Israel uh, as in the context of their redemption out of Egypt. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments themselves don't begin with the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. But it begins with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Likewise, in chapter 6, our chapter today, in verses uh, 4 to 9, you have the Shema. Uh, and at the beginning of this uh, the Shema is, was well known in Judaism and still is today and have formed a key confessional statement of faith for the Jews. And it begins with these words as we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there's a whole sermon in itself to explain that sentence alone. But one thing it teaches us is the pre-existing covenant relationship of God with his people Israel. The Lord our God, or the Lord is our God. God had wondrously and miraculously rescued his people from out of Egypt. Not because they deserved it, not because they were better, but because it was God's free act of mercy and grace that they were delivered. In the broader biblical picture for us as believers living in New Testament times, this reality echoes and points to the greater act of divine grace and mercy, the act of Jesus Christ dying on the cross where he died to redeem all of God's people from their slavery to sin. An act that dominates the very and forms the very foundation of our relationship with God, with believers no, uh, not needing to come uh, to God to try and attempt to win his favor in our own strength. We have nothing to offer him. It is simply received, knowing that God's attitude towards his people is like that of a loving father towards their child, 
Nothing we do or can do if we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior can remove God's steadfast love from us. Being a Christian is like buying a one-way ticket of flight uh, or flight that has no return trip option available. Our destination is secure even if there are many bumps and rocky roads to, to traverse along the way. And so that's the context that we need to understand as we as Christians come to Deuteronomy 6 today. And so let's open up then and consider the command itself here. In verse 5, Moses says uh, this overarching command. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This verse, along with love your neighbor in Leviticus 19, uh, the New Testament refers to them as a summary of God's law. Love God and love others. And to love your God with all your heart, soul, and might is really Moses' way of saying, love God each in each and every way. Love him fully from inside and out, from the very depths of your being to every action that you do. What it means to love God is something that Moses spends the next number of chapters fleshing out for us. Here in chapter 6, he shows that one expression of that love is a willingness to faithfully pass on the faith to the next generation. And so as we consider what does it mean to do that, I want to ask the following questions of our passage. Who, what, where, and when? So let's begin with who. Well, first and foremost, it's obvious that Moses had parents in view when writing these words. Verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Verse 20 says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, and he goes on. The Bible places a high value on the input of parental instruction and guidance for our children. Simply put, if you are a parent, God calls you to raise your kids in the faith. And he places a higher expectations on dads to take a lead on this. Ephesians 4.6 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But mums and dads are not the only people our text applies to. Verse 4 begins with, Hear, O Israel. All of Israel, as God's covenant community of faith, are included in these commands. In New Testament times, the local church is the expression of God's covenant community. You might be familiar with another old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, Maybe you could adapt that a little bit and say it takes a local church to raise a child in the ways of God. Now, in some ways, it feels like I'm preaching to the choir here. For if you are here today, uh, perhaps you, in some way, already do value the local church in some way or another. And if you don't, well, then our text calls you to consider that. The faith is, in a sense, caught from each other. We each bear personal responsibility 
in modeling the Christian life for the sake of each other and the younger generation. I think this also gives perspective for those who are here today who don't have children. If you are single or perhaps married without children, you still play an important role in modeling the Christian faith to others and what it means to be a Christian. And the Apostle Paul, indeed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, speaks highly of the benefits of singleness. So that's the who. Next, let's ask what. What are we to teach our children? Well, in a broad way, it's obvious, isn't it? Raise them in a way to teaching them to love God. This includes teaching them to love God's law. Not teaching them kind of do whatever is right for you, as our culture might say, but that there is a right and wrong. Christian morality matters. How you live your life matters. The Ten Commandments matter. Even when our culture sharply disagrees at times with biblical morality. Living within the framework God has given us in the scriptures really is what is best for us. In the opening few verses of chapter 6, he speaks of all these commands and statutes and the need to obey them and listen to them. Why? Because in doing so, Moses is saying all, that your days might be long in the land. God's commands is good for humanity. The word teach in verse 7 really could be translated as sharpen, like one would sharpen a knife uh, in, in sharpening a sharpening stone. And so in a very real way, Scripture is calling us to hone our children with God's word. The command to teach our children includes also modeling to them how you love God from the heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your might, says Moses. We all know, don't we, that we teach our children by how we live too. If we have a dry, heartless faith, a dead faith, then how are we to teach a living faith to our children? Not only does this mean watching over your own heart then, but taking the time to understand their heart, seeking to apply God's truth to them individually. And it includes teaching them the gospel and God's grace. From verse 21, he says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Likewise, the Christian parent and God's community of faith proclaims that we were dead in our sins and slaved in our wicked ways, but it was Jesus that saved us, and is it Jesus that saves them if they repent of their sins and trust in him alone. Lastly, where and when. And you shall talk of them, where, says Moses? When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and you shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, you shall teach your children 
everywhere and always. Always being ready for an opportunity to talk to your children about Jesus and his ways. Like a coach, always ready and willing to provide godly instruction and input. This includes being intentional about rhythms. Do you plan as a family devotional time in the Bible to pray and to sing? Deuteronomy 6 is a strong argument for doing so. Joel Beakey in his book on family worship says, uh, Ideally, family worship should be conducted twice a day in the morning and in the evening. And he goes on and says that that fits best the scriptural directions uh, in the Old Testament times and is often practiced in the New Testament church. Apparently followed that same prayer. Uh, Timothy Keller in his book on prayer uh, speaks of Calvin and, and how Calvin, uh, in terms of prayer, would pray. Uh, he suggested this. He said, John Calvin um, prepared five brief models, model prayers to be used for each of the five times of the day. He advised Christians to pray, calling for prayers to be offered uh, when we rise in the morning, before we begin daily work, when we sit down to a meal, when by God's blessing we've eaten, and when we are getting ready to retire. Uh, in the same book, he, he notes Luther's approach and how Luther would spend many long hours in prayer, uh, and that was his uh, approach to it. Timothy Keller's own opinion is this. He says, I agree with most Protestant churches that twice a day is good, though we cannot be too insistent on one schedule. I personally find morning and evening prayer the best for me, but I also try to sometimes practice a brief midday stand-up time of focused prayer to reconnect to my morning prayer insights. However you want to skin the cat, the, um, the command here is to seriously consider what rhythms you could be having in place as a family. Uh, if you don't have anything at the moment, start with something. Start with one day a week or one time in the day. Maybe pick dinner or just before bed and start with something. So we've considered the context. We've considered the command itself. Lastly, let's think of the concern that Moses had here. What we learn is that Israel, when the going was good, was tempted to forget the Lord their God. From verse 10, he speaks of how when they would go into the land and receive all this good land and buildings and cities that they did not build and houses full of things that they didn't fill, it says in verse 12, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. After all those long years in the wilderness, finally Israel was about to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A country where they were going to be materially better off than they currently were. But there lied the danger. When the, good, the going was good, they were tempted to forget God. To forget their great need for Him to be caught up in the world and the ways of the world. I don't know about you, but when I read these verses for myself, I found it quite confronting 
how directly applicable that is still for us today. Australian Western life, materially speaking, is so much better than the land of Canaan was for Israel. We too attempted to forget God. And we live in a culture that has, by and large, done that. Where there are comparatively few who hold to the biblical faith. But not only are there passive dangers around us in, a pl- in the w- place and the way that we live here in the West. Dangers, we have also uh, active dangers. With the culture increasingly showing hostility towards Christianity. Christianity and Christian education is being kicked out of many schools. LGBT activists actively seek to promote counter-biblical sexual ethics in our schools. Indeed, our whole Christian schooling system is under threat, uh, has been under threat by our government. Furthermore, the traditional family unit of a husband and wife raising their children in the Lord is almost frowned upon. That model of family is almost seen as old school and irrelevant in modern day Australia. Beyond the human, we have a spiritual enemy. Satan and his kingdom of darkness that is directly against the church and against the Christian family. But God, through Moses, sets the challenge for us front and center. It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. Not man, but God. The Christian parent and every faithful church is called to stand firm in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. And then there's the mess of everyday life to contend with as we seek to live out these commands. Maybe by and large you do faithfully and have lived out a life described in Deuteronomy 6. You know yourself to be far from perfect, but by God's grace you are living out that calling of the Lord. You seek to faithfully teach, you did seek and have sought to seek to faithfully teach your children the Lord. But now you're divorced or married to an unbeliever or your children simply grow up and decide to reject the Lord anyway, despite all you've done to teach them. Or your family situation implodes for some other reason. Family life is messy, isn't it? If that is you today, God sees your situation too. He knows. He cares. Run to him for refuge. Press into him and he will comfort you and grant you his abundant grace. So I ask you, are you passing on the baton to the next generation? As far as it is a means of God's grace, the eternal welfare of your loved ones, count on it. Do not regret this so great a calling. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm sure all of us in some way are challenged as we consider your word here in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, There is always room for improvement in these things, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in your ways, to indeed be a people who are faithfully walking uh, 
in your ways in not only our own life, but in faithfully teaching others, and particularly our children, in your ways. Father, we thank you uh, that we don't do this in our own strength. Indeed, we cannot. But Father, we pray that we might have, through a fresh experience of your grace every day, that out of a love for you, a natural love that you give us in our hearts, that we would indeed uh, teach others and teach our children your ways. Indeed, again, we pray for all of our children, Lord. We commit them into your hands and ask, Father, that you would, in your own time, in your own way, bring about saving faith. And Father, as we live in a culture that does, uh, I guess, oppose Christianity in, in a lot of ways, uh, Father, help us to be faithful to our calling and show that uh, Christianity is actually the better way and that uh, there is something in it that is good for us in, in how living a, a faithful life before you is what is best for us. And Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.